What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality one topic at a time. This is Increase the Reality with Shane Jones. What is up, inquirers, and welcome to the show. I figured that, you know, most podcasts, they have a name for what they call their listeners, and I'm a season in, and I still haven't come up with one for you guys, and the best working one that I can come up with for right now is Inquirers, so I'm just going to go with that. I'm going to start calling you guys the Inquirers, unless somebody else can come up with something better, I'd love to hear it. You guys can always shoot me a message on social media if you can come up with something better, but as of right now, you guys are the Inquirers, and uh, today... I have an author interview for you guys. Uh, the last couple times that I did these, um, it seemed to turn out pretty well. It seemed like a lot of you guys seemed to enjoy it, even though it was a little bit different than the usual information because, you know, we're talking about uh, their stories, their books that they write. But uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Uh, he's a really cool guy. Um, looking forward to hopefully getting to meet him at some events in the future. Uh, Orn and Jenny from uh, Bizarre Encounters, of course, got to meet him relatively recently. And uh, ironically, a couple days later, I'm having him on, on the show, so I'm not going to drop the name yet. Of course, we got to do all the front of house stuff before I uh, actually tell you who the guest is on the show. Uh, so with that, uh, let's run through the stuff as fast as we possibly can today. Uh, if you guys don't mind leaving a review or a rating, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, I know there's a lot of you guys out there listening. Uh, there's not too, too many ratings on the show as of right now, so I would definitely appreciate it if you guys wouldn't mind, even if it's just dropping a five-star review on Spotify. Uh Try to help me boost it up a little bit, you know, uh, get into the ears of more listeners, get seen a little bit more. Uh, the only way it's going to happen is with your guys' help. And uh, if you guys are willing to do that, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, the other thing you guys can do, of course, is share the show. If there's a specific episode that you guys really enjoy and you really want a friend to hear, uh, just throw the idea at them and uh, see if they pick up on it, see if they want to check it out. Um, never know. You never know what other listeners you might incorporate into the Inquirer's family. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep using that line because I kind of dig it, actually. Um, 
If you guys aren't already, you guys can go and follow me on social media for updates on the show, new episodes drop in, uh, anything cool that I happen to post, um, possible giveaways in the future. Uh, still kind of coordinating all that stuff, but if you guys want to keep tabs on all that, definitely go and check me out on Instagram. Uh, there is a Facebook, of course, set up for the page, but everything from that kind of just gets pushed off the Instagram. That's the main one I use, of course. Uh, you guys can also pop into the Telegram or the Discord. I've uh, been a little bit more active in there, trying to drop some new stuff, trying to drop some... Uh, little fun facts here and there for you guys, uh, trying to beef it up a little bit. So check it out, see what you guys think, see if you guys enjoy it, see if you guys want to come and uh, hang out with everybody else on either of those two communities, of course. Um, if anybody wants to be a guest on the show, whether you're an author, researcher, experiencer, occultist, whistleblower, abductee, contactee, the list goes on and on. I want to sit down. I want to have a conversation with you. So don't hesitate to shoot me a message and get a hold of me. Uh, you guys, of course, can shoot me a message on Instagram or you guys can email me at inquiries of our reality podcast at outlook.com. Um, you guys can also go to the link tree and fill out the submission form up at the top, and that'll go directly to my email too, of course. Um, make sure that nothing gets lost in the spammer junk folder. Uh, keep an eye out there because it seems like a lot of my stuff tends to go that way for whatever reason, probably because I send out a lot of links, uh, you know, f- of course, to the guests uh, for Linktree. So, you know, got to love email verification, all that kind of crap. They, of course, probably think that I'm just one of those spammers out here sending out a bunch of links, uh, you know, being obnoxious. So thanks to that, seems like I get pushed that way. But anyways, uh, if you guys can't get enough of the stuff that I do, you guys, of course, can go and check out Bizarre Encounters. Orn and Jenny are always killing it over there. We're always deep diving into some weird stuff or interviewing somebody on some bizarre encounter that they've had. So uh, go and check that out. Uh, if you guys want to keep tabs on everything that I do, because who knows what it might expand to in the future, you guys can go and check out Open Minds Media. That's kind of like my production thing for all of the different podcasts and all the different creator content that I tend to do. Uh, you guys can support the show. There's multiple ways to do so, of course. You guys can go and join the ranks of the awesome Patreon members, such as Brian and Brandy, of course. Uh there you'll get early access to episodes. You'll get live access to episodes. You'll get live replays if you're not able to make it to the lives of the episodes, uh, exclusive giveaways, uh, store discounts, ad-free episodes, always some fun stuff. So uh, go and check it out. See which tier happens to fit you. Uh, if you guys want to donate to the show directly to make it so that I can make it out to some more events this year and possibly get to meet you guys and uh, actually have an in-person conversation with you, uh, you guys can donate through multiple different ways. Uh, you guys can do PayPal, Cash App, Benmo, uh, Red Circle actually too, which is the RSS host for the show. So uh, just go down, of course, to the show description, click all the stuff that says Red Circle Donate all the way down at the bottom, and uh, that'll go directly to uh, the show. And of course, uh, anybody that donates to that, I'm going to give you guys a shout out on the show just to show you how much I appreciate you guys. Uh, And then the third option, of course, to support the show is you guys can go and check out the Open Minds Media merch store where you can go and get yourself some awesome Open Minds Media gear. I do request, hopefully, if any of you guys pick up any of that stuff, uh, send me over a picture of you guys wearing it. If you guys don't want your face included, that's fine too. Uh, I love to repost it on the page, give you guys a shout out, uh, show that there's love and support out there in the world for the show, of course. And uh, if you guys want to show some more love and support, you guys can, of course, go and check out Joe over at Crypto Theology. I know you guys have heard the spiel a bunch of times. Dude's got some awesome t-shirts. He does all the designs himself. Go show him some love and support. He's working really hard over there. He's putting on some events this year. Uh, and the only way he's going to be able to do that, again, just like the shows, if you guys uh, go and show him some love and support. So everything that I mentioned, all available under the link tree. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and spill it out for you. You guys can just go down to the show description and follow the trail to whatever you happen to be looking for. And with that, let's get into the show. 
Please welcome to the show author and illustrator Michael Thompson. How's it going today, man? It's going great. Thank you, Shane, for having me. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I've kind of seen you bouncing around the community. Seems like we know a lot of the same people, but ironically, we haven't actually had a conversation since before this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is this is pretty cool. I've been doing. I've been starting to do more uh, cryptozoology conventions. Um, I've been doing book signings and stuff for a long time, and I started doing comic cons. And then from there, I've started to uh, drift into the cryptozoology scene, uh, and it's been really fun. And I've been meeting a lot of cool people. So I guess uh, for anybody that isn't familiar with who you are, other than the fact now that they know that you're an author and an illustrator. Uh, why don't you kind of let them know a little bit about you, uh, what you do, what your books are exactly, and uh, what kind of got you started doing what you're doing? Sure. Uh, well, my name is Michael Thompson. I am an independent author and an illustrator. Um, I've been writing and illustrating and publishing my work since I was 13. That's when my uh, action Props to packed, you, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Action-packed illustrated children's book series Chicken Boy came out. And that was based on a character I made when I was just nine years old. That was about a chicken who eats radioactive birdseed and becomes a superhero. And he and his pals save the world from monsters and mad scientists in a town where nothing's ever quite normal. Um, I actually released uh, one of the latest books that I released is uh, Chicken Boy and the Might of the Monkey Man. And that just came out pretty recently. And so I've kind of circled back around and returned to uh, the series that started it all. Um, and uh, But after, after uh, the first three Chicken Boy books, I started... Uh, going more into bigger novels. And uh, the first novel that I did after that was World of the Orb. And that was about two best friends on a field trip to the Museum of Natural History. And they sneak away from the group and they break the one rule, which is not to go in the artifact room and definitely not to touch the orb. And when they do, they're zapped and cast headlong into an alternate world where monsters, myths, and magic are real. And they're sent on a harrowing adventure, a sort of a treasure hunt across uh, many strange lands to find Earth again. Ooh, that one sounds fascinating. Um, that sounds right up my alley. I love that kind of fantasy yeah. stuff. I just like the whole oh, idea great. of different worlds and different realities. Like it's always fascinating me. I'm sure anybody can kind of tell from like the format of a show I do, but <laughs> I love that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of inspiration from mythology and stuff, uh, mixed with blended with a lot of my own stuff. So it's like it's a medieval world, but it's got these super cool, uh, in some cases, alien creatures. Um, really neat, really neat stuff. And then um, as far as cryptozoology goes, I've always been interested in the topic. I've always been, I've loved, you know, all the shows on history and Animal Planet and all those things and the books, especially sea monsters. Um, I was very fascinated um, since I was quite young with the vintage sea maps, um, like the Carta Marina by Olaus Magnus that has the, you know, all these, all these fantastical creatures sort of illustrated in the negative space in the in the oceans, uh, between, between the lands. And then as well as into, uh, folklore and all these other things and hearing about these, uh, personal encounters that people have had, it really, uh, sort of inspired me. And, uh, I started writing, uh, the book that I'll, I'll talk about in a second, Winslow Hoffner's incredible encounters before I knew it was a book. It was a, I had a short story called Gambo and that was, uh, that was an interesting one because that the first line of it came to me um, before I knew anything else about it. It was, uh, have you ever stared straight into the eyes of death and scoffed? That line came into my head and I thought, ooh, that's, that's an interesting 
interesting uh potential story right there so it definitely sets a mood cool. and it already brings you into that like sailor like you know piratey like kind of mindset exactly and so i i typed that into a document real quick and i set that aside i had no idea um what it could be uh, but uh like i said it was high school and eventually i got an assignment to write a short story um in a creative writing class and and I went back to that document and I thought, okay, this is, this is interesting. So who is this guy and, and uh, what are the eyes of death? And you know, I, I decided pre- pretty quickly it had to be some type of a sailor um, because not only did the line come through, but the voice of this guy came through as well. And uh, he sounded very experienced and he sounded very salty. And, and so I started exploring that. And I knew it couldn't be you know, your standard fish it couldn't even be a shark, you know, that had these eyes of death. And I thought, what could it be? And that's when my other foundational interest of cryptozoology and folklore started to rise to the top of my mind. And, uh, you know, blending that with my knowledge of, you know, certain aquatic mysteries, uh, the, I was immediately struck by uh, this memory of, of a case uh, in the Gambia in 1983. And that was a creature that they dubbed Gambo. And it was this very unusual looking creature. It had like a head like an alligator and the body like a dolphin had these little feet and on its underbelly. And they didn't quite know what it was. They didn't know if it was some type of prehistoric dolphin or the last of the Mosasaurs. But before anyone had a chance to scientifically document it, the body was chopped up. It was buried in the sand. The head was sold to a tourist. And I thought, this is great. I can do whatever I want with this thing. <laughs> so um, immediately I, I imagined this sort of uh, fire-breathing fish is what uh, she's called in the book. And she's featured very prominently on the cover here. For uh, all so, the audio listeners, of course, too, I'll include the uh, cover art for the book mm-hmm. in the cover art for the episode so you guys can check it out and for yourselves and see what, uh, see what exactly he's talking about. Yeah. And so that's something that I like to do when I write. I like to write out of the, out of the gate, jump into um, the most unbelievable thing possible and make it believable. And so, uh, you know, fire and water doesn't typically go together. Uh, but I imagined um, in one case that it does is, is uh, magnesium. Magnesium burns so hot uh, that it creates its own oxygen underwater. And so uh, Gambo in this story has this sort of um, organic, uh, magnesium kind of effect where she can, uh, uh breathe, wa- uh, create her own oxygen with, uh, her fiery breath. Um, but from there I had, I had that one story, set it aside in college. I wrote another story called the trouble with mermaids and it followed directly after, um, uh, Gambo and, that was pretty interesting. And so I originally I thought it was going to be a collection of short stories, but as I worked on it, I realized, no, there's a really cool uh, a story arc that's happening uh, with these characters. And um, as it turns out, uh, Winslow is, uh, has seen a lot more than even I knew. And so the basic premise of the story is uh, it's like a classic fisherman's tales, both real monsters. It's a folkloric fantasy on the high seas is what I like to call it about cryptids, sea monsters, epic urban legends a few have beheld, but there's one man who happens to have seen them all, Winslow Hoffner, the gallant fisherman. He's regaling his tales of adventure to a couple of journalists who discover their small harbor town is harboring incredible secrets. Dude, that sounds amazing. I'm going to have to... 
I haven't actually gotten to read the book yet because I was waiting until we actually had an opportunity to meet at a convention so I could actually get a signed copy because I love doing that with anybody that's an author on this on that comes onto the show. But uh, I love the f- having people on that have an interest in folklore and then they connect it with stories and they can start recreating like fictional stories off of it. Cause I've talked about it a few times on the show. I think it almost like inspires a new generation of people that are going to get into like cryptids. Cause a lot of the time it's like you start looking at like research documentaries or like research books. And for like the average person just kind of getting into it, like it's not really like piquing their interest, trying to like think about the exact scientific details about all these creatures theoretically existing. So when you start including characters like this and beings like this into like fictional stories, then it unintentionally sparks this subconscious interest in people where, you know, they want to read your story, of course, but then they start digging into that previous, like other aspects to it, seeing like what parts of it exactly are true, which parts of it are like the parts that you extended on. So it's like, it almost unintentionally pushes them to like do research onto these topics. So I, I think it's a really cool idea. And I really like when people do that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's 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 pretty fun. Um, it creates a, an interesting experience for people when they read it because they crack it open and then there's um, these specific like little details, you know, like I mentioned, you know, 1983 when when uh, Gambo washed ashore. Uh, Winslow mentions that to John, the journalist that he's speaking to. And uh, these other sort of uh, things like the St. Augustine mystery, these things are are mentioned in the book. And then as you're reading it, you can, uh, if you, if you look that up and then you see, you know, these articles come up and it's like, whoa. So it's kind of, um, uh, for people, it's been an interesting experience. Like it's almost like this sort of mythos. It almost makes Winslow more real, uh, as, as they're reading it too. And, uh, I just released the audiobook, which is very, a very exciting thing to announce. I think this is, uh, yeah, this is the first show that I've been on, uh, where I can announce the audiobook officially. <laughs> And I narrated it myself. And so you can hear all the different voices. I just uploaded a really cool, very cinematic trailer uh, to my YouTube channel. And um, you can also see it at the top of my website uh, where you can, uh, you can hear a little bit of each of the characters because each of the characters has their own unique voice and dialect. And so dialects are a really uh, interesting thing in this book. It's, it's, it's written phonetically. So if you, if you get the paperback, you can sort of, you can see the accent on the page. If you get the audio book, you can, you can hear it almost like an audio drama. That's honestly, I feel the best way to do it is you have to have the actual author narrate the book because that's the only way you're going to get all the voices right. And it just brings like a whole new life to it because it's not just somebody reading it and like acting like you actually have that like love and care for the book that you want to make sure all the voices are absolutely perfect. And it just, it brings in like a whole other connection to it, man. That's awesome that you actually got to release that. And, um, is is it going to be available on like Amazon or any, any of those kind of things, or is it just going to be available through like your website? Yeah, it's currently available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we're looking at getting more right now, but currently those are the three that it's available on. So I always ask this because I like when it comes to people that are uh, authors, um, especially fictional stories, did you have a character in your story that you kind of like inspired off of yourself? Because more often than not, I feel like a lot of fiction writers will have a character in their book that's inspired by themselves. And I always got to ask, like, which, which character is it? <laughs> Well, uh, I'm definitely, uh, going back to World of the Orb, uh, Marvin and Andy are the two kids that get sucked into this alternate world. And uh, those two guys are, are very much inspired, uh, I, are, are 
the two halves of, of my personality, you know, uh, Marvin is, is the very quiet and reserved fella. And uh, Andy is kind of the bombastic uh, comedic uh, guy who likes to joke around. And so, um, you know, you take certain aspects of your personality, but then you turn them up and then you kind of, it flushes out the character because, you know, th those, those virtues and their personality also create some of their uh, flaws that they may need to overcome as they, as they go about their journey. Like Marvin, it, Marvin is really, really humble, but he's so humble that he, he doubts himself. And so uh, the book is about, uh, is a lot about conquering self-doubt on, on like a personal level, as much as it is about overcoming these staggering uh, odds of trying to, trying to cross over into another universe, get back to your own universe. Um, but in terms of, uh, in terms of Winslow, uh, that was kind of inspired by by my two loves at the time. I was a journalist. I was you know working on the school paper, and then after uh, after high school, I, I had worked a little bit as a journalist uh, for a local uh, local outlet. And uh, it was kind of I had this clash of interests because I, I enjoyed listening to other people's stories and then telling people's stories. Uh, but I really really love creative writing, and you know. Uh, uh, all kinds of all kinds of otherworldly, you know, fiction, and so this book is kind of a clash of those two worlds. So we have John Chaplin, who's our journalist, who's very much, very much a skeptical uh, type of guy, very fact based, and then we have Winslow, who is the, who is living magic, you know, this <laughs> this guy who claims to have had all of these wild experiences, and there's no way they could possibly be true, but the way he recounts them, it's so certain that. John can't help but believe it and and like slip into this mode of childlike wonderment as he's hearing him tell these stories. A lot of the book is actually told within dialogue. It's it's kind of very unique. It's a framed story. So, you know, physically we're sitting with uh Winslow in his houseboat and most of the most of the tale, most of the adventure is recounted in his dialogue, in his uh discussions with John or whoever he may be speaking to in that particular chapter. So uh, when it comes to like you writing, uh, when exactly like did you start writing first of all? And like what, what like inspired you to start writing in general, not like specifically about like cryptids or about anything like that, but just like what inspired you to write? Was it like a specific book you read? Was it like anything like a specific like movie or something you read that you really liked the story of or? Yeah, I well, I've always been kind of uh, creating stories, and I was drawing before I was writing. Um, way back in third grade, I would I would always be doodling on the sides of the page. The margins of my notebooks and the backs of worksheets would be filled with these epic battles that would that used to get me in trouble. And uh, at one point, even after class, I was uh, I was drawing. And I had a teacher who uh, snatched what I was drawing out of my hand, brought it to the front of the class, held it up, said, this is a distraction. And she ripped it up and Ooh. then she threw the pieces over my face like confetti. And uh, and I was sent to summer school because of it. But at summer school, I met um, my teacher uh, who would become my fourth grade teacher. And he, I, I remember sitting in class and I had my hands folded and I was thinking to myself, I'm not going to draw, I'm not going to draw. Um, but then the first assignment, he's like, Hey, we're going to create a comic book. You know, it's like, <laughs> I get to do this. So, uh, so that kind of blew my mind. And so there was a really big uh, creative aspect to that class. And that's where I ended up creating chicken boy because I was watching an animal rescue show and they had this baby King vulture, uh, on the program. 
and he was uh, kind of funny looking. And he had these puffy feathers and these big old feet that looked too big for his body. And so something about that inspired me. And so I quickly uh, cartooned my version of him wearing a cape. So as you can see on the cover of Chicken Boy, he doesn't quite look like a chicken. Uh, he looks a lot like a vulture. But that's because I didn't think Vulture Boy sounded very good. So I called him Chicken Boy. And, uh, and that's how Chicken Boy was born. Is that other guy in the cover class. next to him a uh, Sasquatch? It almost looks like a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot. Yeah, I actually, uh, when I do book signings, I have a little, uh, <laughs> I got a little Bigfoot that I put a, put a necktie on, <laughs> but, um, uh, he's, uh, he's the monkey man. And so he's kind of inspired by Sasquatch, but he's also kind of inspired by, um, kind of the trope of like the wolf man, the, the, you know, civilized human turned animal, uh, kind of thing. That's kind of what I do in the chicken boy books. They're inspired by these different archetypal, uh, villains. The first book is a mad scientist villain. The next, uh, couple of books, we got these giant, you know, kaiju style monsters attacking the city. And, um, in the third book specifically, we have like a nice zombie style, uh, takeover, but they're all plants. And, uh, and then this book is kind of the, uh, kind of the Wolfman style, you know, transformative uh, man turned beast. And uh, he was bitten by a radioactive vampire monkey. And that's what turned him into, <laughs> into, uh, into the monkey man here. There's a big radioactive element to chicken boy. Uh, Cause I, I loved uh, the Marvel uh, comics. And so my homage to Spider-Man uh, was sort is sort of embodied in the first chicken boy book. Cause he's radioactive bird. See, just like Spider-Man got his powers from a radioactive spider bite. So, I like the whole radioactive thing. And so that's kind of a recurring joke in chicken boy. That was actually weirdly enough going to be my next question is if pretty much, if you were into comic books before you had to do this project, or if it was more of a thing that you were into drawing and because you did this comic book project that you got into like comic book stuff. Right. Yeah. I, I, I was kind of, uh, into, uh, there was, I, I, I loved, uh, the sort of nineties cartoons, uh, the Spider-Man and the X-Men and, mm-hmm. Uh, all those. So, so that's sort of what I grew up on. And so that was kind of fresh in my mind, um, when I was, when I was doing those things, but I enjoyed any sort of, um, any sort of medium as an opportunity to tell stories. in. I like comics, um, chicken boy. It's not exactly a comic, but it's, it's an illustrated chapter book. So it has the words up top and it has a picture on every page. Um, so I can show you a little bit of it. See, there's all kinds of, all kinds of great stuff in there. And this is uh this particular scene that I landed on is actually really funny in Chicken Boy Four. <laughs> there's um, this is uh, this is kind of inspired. Do you remember the Daredevil um, uh, hallway fight scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in yep. the in the Netflix show. So so we've got this hallway fight here. And so Professor Big Nose is doing his thing on his invention here, and he's not noticing. He's looking for the Monkey Man, and the Monkey Man is in a intense battle with chicken boy that flies into the background here. So he crashes into this. And this was a great opportunity because, um, I used to do chicken boy like pencil and paper and, uh, returning to it and drawing it digitally. I have the opportunity to sort of keep the background, but add more destruction as we go. So it gets just worse and worse and worse in the background and so obvious. And he's, he's still caught up in <laughs> working on, on this little project. And you can see Barnacle, the other characters, like Professor. He's trying to get his attention, and then, uh, and then of course uh, he fixes his invention just in time for the Monkey Man to be gone. <laughs> so, so there's that. 
Um, but yeah, so we got lots of um, lots of great storytelling told in the pictures as well in Chicken Boy. How many of those do you have uh, out yeah, so that's far? That's the fourth one. That's fourth the fourth one. one. And we're we're circling back around. I'm going to do um, anniversary editions of the first three Chicken Boys. Uh, hopefully by uh, sometime next year, uh, those should all be out. Um, I'm re-illustrating them and and putting them into this nice industry standard size. Uh, but yeah, those are they're really funny. Um, they're great. I've are you been working on them for a long, long time? Have you thought about doing like a complete volume of them to be able to sell it like conventions and stuff? Because I'm sure people would probably love it if they could buy like all of your chicken bo- chicken uh, boy books all in one. Maybe I, one day, one day I wouldn't mind like doing like a companion book that has like sort of that's a thick tome that, that has little write-ups on every single character because I, you know, I come up with little backstories for people, even if they're in the background of, of a scene, you know, uh, no matter how big or small someone's role is, I always come up with a, with a nifty backstory for them and who they are. And that's something that I do did with world of the orb too. I had um, these great, Notebooks. That's something I sort of carried with me uh, since my fourth grade days when I was uh, in, in properly inspired by my teacher, Mr. A. Um, and he told me never stop, never stop writing. And I said, okay, okay. And Mr. A. And um, and so I have these notebooks. It's kind of like an encyclopedia of creatures, of magic systems, of uh, of everything, of, of societies and stuff that appear in the fantasy book and World of the Orb. And then I also sort of do um, uh, things for, for Winslow as well, for the cryptids, for my personal interpretation of the cryptids anyway. And then it's assumably, like you said, you do all of your illustrations and stuff. So your, your newest novel that you're working on, um, I'm assuming you did the cover art for that too. I did. Yeah. I did the cover art and at the top of every chapter, we've got really cool, um, illustrations of the, of the beasts that Winslow encounters. So I'd love to go through uh, some more of these beasts because I know you mentioned a couple of them before the show. And as far as I go, like I definitely dig into the folklore and I love that stuff. So, you know, if you want to connect some yeah, of it yeah. and uh, sh- tell some of the actual folklore stories about it, I'm sure the listeners would love hearing about it. Right, right. So we got Gambo. That's our that's our introduction into the world, which is it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I really like the um, the obscure ones uh, as much as I like, you know, the famous uh, legends of cryptozoology. Um, but we also have. Uh, you know, your classic mermaids, uh, which appeared, you know, in mythology as well. And then we have over here, uh, we've got a massive uh, snapping turtle, which uh, you might be able to guess uh, what this is. I'm assuming it's inspired by the Beast of Buscow. That's right. Yes, yeah, so it's the Beast of Buscow. I was actually at um, Southwest Virginia Bigfoot and Friends and uh, just where I met Justin and Jay from Cryptids of the Corn. And Justin pointed at that and he's like, beast of bus go, right? And he's, and I'm like, yep, yep. Very good eye. <laughs> and he's like, he of course has a pet snapping turtle named uh, Bosco, but, um, but yeah, so we got the beast of Busco, which, you know, that's a 1949 legend where we got this massive snapping turtle, you know, it's shell is huge. <laughs> it's, it's, and uh, which it's not, that's not too unusual of a, of a cryptid to, to believe existed. It's just like a case of, of a giant, uh, uh, reptile. And, uh, so it was in the bottom of this lake. People, people saw it, people were lining up to see it. And then, uh, and then one of these days they, uh, they wanted to do that hunting party and, uh, they all went out to try and hunt it, but it was never found. Um, so that's a great, that's a great little legend there. There was a, well, there was um, one he, particular guy that had like a vendetta with it and there was like multiple, really? like, um, 
almost like comic book scenarios about like it just getting away kind of a thing. Like he went to the city and he got like um, approved for like a bunch of like dynamite and he was like trying to blow up certain parts of the lake and like one of his crew members like <laughs> fell in and stuff and like almost got killed in the process. There's like this whole fucking thing that goes with it that there's this one particular guy that had some type of like a... Uh, I guess like a Moby Dick type of story with the beast of Bosco. And he was just trying to do anything in his power to go after this thing. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. See, I love that stuff. And uh, we jump in with um, the beast of Bosco. Uh, our, our story for that one, it's, it's a bit of a flashback. It takes place in 1976. Um, but it's this formative moment for, for Winslow and uh, one of his friends. And uh, so Busco's had a, a, a few more decades to uh, to get even beefier, and so uh, so yeah, they encounter they encounter Busco, and um, yeah, it's interesting. I've got I got a little bit of a Men in Black sort of situation going as well in the book that kind of unfolds, and I won't get into it too much. But we have a really cool uh, really cool agency, and 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 the lore of that sort of um, sort of bleeds out as you as you as you read about it. Um, I had an interesting uh, situation. So the second uh, shelled uh, creature that we have here is this massive, um, massive lobster. And that is the focal point of a chapter called it weren't no sandbar. And I was, uh, it was interesting because I was, uh, I was writing it. And and then I, this next part of the next part of the story came to me as an interesting part of the process where I sort of see parts of it first. I either see kind of like a, I either get like one line uh, from which everything blooms or it's like one image. And in this case, I see this sandbar sized lobster and I don't know of any lobster cryptids. So I started looking stuff up and I, I can't find anything. I can find uh, sort of uh, mentions of, of, of similar things on those vintage sea maps. Uh, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, but, but no, like really modern cryptids. I like to have what I call like the tether for the story, the real world tether. Uh, so you can trace it back. And I was like, Hmm. And so then I thought, okay, let me look this up. And I looked up, uh, when and where the world's largest lobster was ever caught. And lo and behold, it was caught in exactly the place that the book takes place in Nova Scotia. And I thought this was meant to be. And so, so uh, that one is kind of a little bit, a little bit more of my own personal creation, but it's based on a record breaking catch from Nova Scotia. And I thought that was, that was a really fantastic uh, coincidence there. Do you know the weight Um, or size of that offhand just for anybody that's curious? uh, Not offhand, but I know it was, it was quite large and lobsters. That's, that's one of those creatures that can just grow you know forever un- unchecked you know i mean there's nothing stopping it until until something else eats it um but winslow's got a, a nice line uh when he's telling the story to the little restaurant where a lot of the stories are told uh, there's this little irish restaurant called keely's bayside eatery where he tells a lot of his stories and uh, he says, you know, the bigger a beast is, the more it can eat. The more it can eat, the bigger it gets. Before long, you got yourself a real monster and a darn good story, too. And so he tells that uh, to tells that to the patrons and as well to um, Ken Keeley, who he likes to tease. And, and Keeley does not believe him <laughs> at all. Um, so partly Winslow enjoys telling him because he doesn't believe him. Um, but yeah, so 
uh, that's that was a, that was a really cool <laughs> that was a really cool coincidence finding that record breaking catch from Nova Scotia. So when it comes to like fisherman stories, obviously everybody seems to like extend on them and like you know make them a lot more than what they are. And when you're like right. writing this book and you had the intention of like him telling these stories to this other person, like did you have the fisherman mindset that he's like expanding on the tales, or are you trying to take it from the point of like he's telling them exactly literal and just because he's a fisherman, the other people are kind of like ah fisherman tales. <laughs> well, that's yeah, it's an interesting. Uh, there's a theme in in Winslow of uh, kind of inversion Uh, with fishermen, with sailors, you kind of have certain expectations and Winslow is almost the inversion of all of them. Uh, So we'll go with fisherman tales for a second. You kind of expect, uh, what would you say? This kind of elaborate exaggeration. uh, 10 foot fish turns into a 20 foot fish real quick. (laughs) It was this big. It was huge. And so, and so you expect that. Uh, But that's the interesting thing. Winslow is a terrible liar. And so, so his stuff sounds like he's, he's lying, but like you hear some other points in the book where he's, you know, trying to lie. Um, there's this one, (laughs) there's this one part where uh, a character, the antagonist, uh, sort of has him cornered and he, and, uh, he shows him, uh, he holds up, uh, the newspaper where he's featured it has a picture of him and he's like, Oh, Hey, there you are. And he's like, that ain't me. You know? And so, <laughs> so he's a terrible liar. Uh, and, and that's the interesting thing. All, all of his stories are true. His, uh, he always drinks root beer. He's not a drinker. Uh, he's not a smoker. Uh, he goes out, he goes out on the balcony, which John is assuming that he's going to take a smoke break, but he, then he just blows on a whistle for some reason. And there's, uh, <laughs> it's revealed why he does that later. But, uh, and he's also like constantly drinking root beer. I don't know how his metabolism does it, but like <laughs> this man is like sustained on sugar. Uh, so, and he's drinking, that's kind of his signature drink. And then, of course, uh, his stories sound unbelievable, but uh, as we learn, uh, there's there's more to them than than just stories. Did you um, end up drawing him into the book anywhere, or do you have like an idea of like what you think he looks like in your mind if you didn't yeah. draw him into the books? So we got a picture here. There's a picture of him. So right for the, the uh, audio listeners, I'm assuming that's the audiobook, right? You're selling it as CDs for yeah. anybody that is interested yeah, in that got- also? Yeah, we got CD and USBs that I sell at my conventions, um, but this is also the uh, artwork that you'll see on audible.com uh, where we have Winslow uh, in the center here. And this is actually a composite image of many uh, CC0 uh, uh, photographs um, to create uh, Winslow's very specific look. Um, it's, also on, it's also on the back of, uh, of the back cover of the paperback. So you can see him there. He's got one big, uh, one big swollen right eye. He's got this sort of chin strap, uh, gray beard, and he's always wearing a knit cap and he's miss- missing a lot of his teeth. Uh, that's him. That's Winslow Hoffner. <laughs> So, um, obviously like your main thing when it comes to cryptids seems to be like aquatic cryptids. So yeah, I love sea monsters. Did your fascination with that start with like the whole possibility that the ocean is so undiscovered that it just brings more light and possibility to a lot of these creatures theoretically existing. Like even, even the giant squid was something that you saw in those maps and it wasn't until what, like maybe like 30, 40 years ago that we actually started finding scraps of these things actually existing so it was like a cryptid yeah. up until re- relatively recently <laughs> yeah it's it's amazing it, that's an amazing story the giant squid the colossal squid and then when you finally see saw those um videos of them wow you know 
uh, yeah, the Kraken was a big, uh, big interest to me. I remember specifically and, and, uh, and a very, very specifically, it's a, it's one of those, uh, tethers for the big finale of, of Winslow. Um, specifically we're, we're inspired here by, uh, Octopus Giganteus, the St. Augustine mystery blob from, uh, 1896. And so there's, uh, there's contention over whether that was whale blubber or that was a proper, uh, piece of a gigantic, uh, you know, kraken of a of a super massive octopus and in winslow of course it's it's the octopus and so we have uh we've got a great octopus gigantius in here um so that's uh that was a very near and dear to to me yeah i was i'm I'm very inspired by all kinds of all kinds of uh legends of the sea um they say that the sea is uh the, the deep ocean is less known than some parts of space and i think there's lots of great opportunity to tell stories uh in that unknown cryptozoology itself i kind of look at as uh one of the last frontiers of the unknown and uh, in there is a great opportunity for storytelling that is very true i've always said that humans have a need for exploration and mystery and with the world the way it is today it's like you there's very there's very little of that left so like you were saying like the final frontier is like the whole cratic cryptid aspect and specifically as far as like our world goes where things that people can actually do things with are like cryptids found in the woods or like water cryptids right because it's like obviously there's a lot of weird vast things that could exist within space but you know obviously people aren't able to go and see those things so it's like our final frontier left for like the common man as far as i'm kind of concerned exactly exactly but um so kind of going back to uh your books a little bit so obviously you did a lot of like research when you were starting to dig into all this kind of stuff and i always like to ask people to dig into stuff like what is probably like the weirdest thing or your personal favorite weird thing that you may not think that anybody may know that you'd want to share with the listeners because more often than not, it's like you'll find some some really weird stuff. Like I found like something I was listening to a show the other day, um, and I was hearing something about like necro pants. Like any any of those like weird little tales that nobody knows, man. They they fascinate me. I love hearing them. <laughs> hmm. Uh, in in terms of uh, things that I came upon in my research, oh boy. Uh, I don't know. The, the first thing it's it's actually the. I mean, I I spend so long, um, researching the weird stuff that uh the the most interesting aspect of my research process for the books are actually, um, like the mundane stuff. So I, uh, I was calling fish restaurants, uh, in Nova Scotia to validate like a single line (laughs) from the book. The book was about to come out and I was like, I really need to know what fish are available (laughs) in the bays in Nova Scotia. And, uh, around this specific time of year. And I wanted to find out what the weather was like. So I was calling, you know, the, the fishery uh, places, but I kept getting bounced around. So I was like, let me go local. And so I searched top restaurants in Nova Scotia. And then I called, you know, uh, the top two. And I said, Hey, this is a really weird question. Um, but I'm an author from America and I'm interested in, uh, knowing what type, what type of fish you got, uh, during this time here. <laughs> and, uh, 
And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, let me pass you to the chef. And then, you know, and then the chef tells me, it's like, oh, yeah, we got this, we got that. And I was like, do you have mackerel? He's like, oh, yeah, we got a lot of mackerel. I was like, okay, good, good. Because we got a line uh, with uh, our Irish uh, cook, uh, Keely, who I mentioned earlier. And it's in the it's in the second chapter, and he comes up to Winslow, and he's like, "You just love making me work with mackerel, don't you, Wins? You know, and and uh, and Wins is like Winslow's like, you know, don't kill the messenger, take it up with the bay, and so they have this little exchange. It's one line in the book, but I, you know, I spent hours on the phone just to make sure <laughs> that we got uh, the proper type of fish that Ken just so happens to you know be sick of, and so that was in there, and I wanted to find out about the weather. Um, the the big finale of the book takes place in uh, March 28th and there's this massive snowstorm that's uh, mentioned and you know this is up in Canada so it's you know colder but I wanted to make sure that you know it, it was feasible or if I had to switch anything and it just so happened the book was about to come out and uh, and we were in that time of year in real life and so I and while I was talking to the chef, I, I said, Hey, what's the, what's the weather up there? And uh, what's it like? He's like, Oh yeah, snowing. And he describes it. He's like, we're about to get walloped. I said, okay, all right. You know? And so <laughs> I was like, I was like, you know, I was, I was like, stay safe, but um, you know, this is good for the book. And then I gave them a shout out when the book finally came out. Interestingly enough on March 28th, when <laughs> the big finale <laughs> of the book was taking place in, in the, in the fictional world. So it was kind of cool. Another cool, um, real life overlap there that's a perfectionist and an overthinker at work so i can definitely relate yeah. and i appreciate people <laughs> do stuff like that I, it sounds insane to like the average person to do something like that but it's like i totally 100 percent understand it <laughs> absolutely yeah i went out to um i wanted to experience what it was like to i had never fired a crossbow and in world of the orb one of our main characters is is very deaf, deaf, uh, with a crossbow. She's, uh, described as a huntress. She has all these cool, like little fantasy tools and stuff. And one of them is this crossbow and it's like, you know, it's a fantasy crossbow. It's like self-loading and stuff, but I, I had never like fired a real world crossbow. So I went and I found, you know, this little shack on the side of the road that had crossbows. And I asked, you know, there was, there's this young man who was, uh, running the front desk. And I said, hi, I said, and I explained, explained the situation. I said, do you have any like way to test fire these things? Cause it was a small shack. I didn't think it was possible actually. Once I got in there, it's probably and better with a small shack like, than an actual store. Cause the small shacks like, fuck probably. it. Here you go, man. <laughs> yeah. That's well, that's exactly what happened. Cause the kid's like, yeah, no problem. And then he goes out into the middle of the store and he tugs on a rope. And then this mattress with a board <laughs> folds down. I was like, no way. <laughs> and then he, then he hands me, the kid hands me a crossbow and, and gives me the rundown. And then, so, you know, then you, you know, you learn what it's like, you know, the, you get the sense of the, the shock and the, and the, you know, the smell of the, of the, you know, the hot metal of the cord snapping and, uh, and uh, you know, the, all the, all the different pieces of it, um, the anatomy of the, of the tool. And I thought that was, you know, all those things really interest me because I love words. And so learning about like, you know, what's this part called? What's this part called? You know, how's this work? And, and so, it makes the story richer. The real world experiences are like the colors with which you paint uh, your fantasy world. Very true. And it seems like a lot of the authors I talk about, like down to the fine details of things, it's like a lot of people don't take into consideration when you're writing a book that you have to be 
not you, you don't you're not just stating what's happening. You have to be colorful with what's happening. You have to explain everything down to like the fine detail of everything. You have to put people into the atmosphere and into the mood. And it's not as simple as just coming up with it. Like more often than not, you have to actually experience these things for yourself to even be able to like relate like a smell to something. And I always appreciate authors that actually physically go do it rather than like looking up what it's like in order to incorporate it into the book. Because then it just, again, comes from a more wholesome, more organic spot. And you're able to like really bring in your interest into things. Like even like you were saying, like categorizing and just knowing the names of the parts. I'm kind of the same way. And it seems like a lot of people that are into the things that we're into, the cryptic community, it's like a common detail that you'd like to know the names of things and categorize things. Because I'm assuming you're probably right. the same guy that used to watch like Star Wars and you probably would like know the yeah. name of every species that was in it. And it was just like you want to categorize yes, things and know what the difference was between things. And it's like a lot of us, it seems like we all kind of have like the same basis of like our interest to where we are now like even the comic book thing everybody that's into cryptids and stuff and like all these deep concepts of thought and like interdimensional concepts like that has the root of you read comic books when you were a kid <laughs> right yeah exactly i actually have a, you mentioned star wars i got a you can sort of see it i've got a wampa up there on the on the shelf there <laughs> from uh you that mean was a, actually that was a space uh, yeti? <laughs> yeah, space yeti exactly. I think that might be one of uh, the reasons that I got really interested into cryptozoology. I was like, "There's these things in real life," you know. So um, I remember seeing that scene. My uncle had it on on TV, and uh, and I was like, "What is that?" And so yeah, I love the practical effects of it and stuff. That and uh, Army of Darkness was Ooh. another one of my my favorite my favorite movie ever i had a feeling um, with that second book that you mentioned that you were an army of darkness fan evil dead that's well, like yeah it has that secondary for me. modern guy <laughs> medieval world you know sort of uh thing i actually got uh at one of my friends at a uh one of the comic book comic uh conventions that i do okay you see that right there that's um you know for the audio listeners there's a caricature of me uh as ash from evil dead this little uh little pencil is that the uh, this is my boomstick where he's holding the shotgun this up in the air? Stick. Yeah, that's <laughs> my favorite. This is my favorite scene. I had um yeah, my friends at uh Never Been Designs, uh, they did that. They're pretty cool if you guys want to check them out. They will caricature you as your favorite uh figure from pop culture. So Dude, that's I'll have to look into that because that's awesome. And just to throw it out yeah, there, dude, cool. my personal favorite line from all the Evil Dead movies is in the very first one when he uh, first finds the chainsaw, or I think it's the second one where he gets the chainsaw, he gets his hand messed up, and then he clicks the chainsaw on and he's like groovy for the first time. Yeah, groovy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that, dude. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the second movie and uh, Army of Darkness are are some of my favorite pieces of of film ever. Oh man. Not yeah, to get too off on a side tangent, but I was even absolutely surprised by the show. Like the show was phenomenal. The show too. was amazing. Oh man, I wish that it got another season because the way it ended, I won't, I won't say it if you guys want to check it out. But the way it ended, there was so many cool possibilities. Um, yeah, that show was great. It had it had the exact perfect blend of horror and comedy, which uh, made the second and third film so great. And then you got Bruce Campbell being a troll all the time where he's like, I'm done playing Ash. And then all of a sudden, two years later, he's like, maybe I'll come back as Ash. And everybody's I, like, oh, really, <laughs> he's really, yeah, he's, he's really, uh, he's really teasing us. I really hope he comes back. You know, they're doing, I think I, maybe it's a marketing uh, thing because they got Evil Dead Rise coming out. And that again is kind of back to the, um, you know, kind of the pure horror uh, kind of vibe. 
that they were going for in the remake. Um, and I think that Fetty Alvarez is doing it right. So get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code program for a four week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. They got that coming out. They played that trailer ahead of the latest John Wick uh, which I went to see in theaters, and that was pretty. That was a scary trailer, I gotta <laughs> say. Uh, but I like I like the horror comedy combo personally. I'll say number but, two um, is probably my absolute favorite out of all the Evil Dead's, and it's ironic because usually number two out of any movie series isn't the best one. It's kind of like mid range, but as far as Evil Dead goes, I feel like that was where they yeah. really like hit the stride and set the pace of like what it was supposed to be. Was number two? <laughs> they they nailed it. They nailed it, and it's it's actually the perfect blend. I would say the third the third movie is more of an adventure movie but um the second film is that perfect like half and half horror comedy um that so many other films have tried to uh emulate and uh and and they have all the all those great practical effects too yeah evil dead 2 and the reason the reason that it's so good also is it's like it's it's the first movie is compressed into the opening like (laughs) they have like kind of all the important events right up front so you can just jump straight into that one and it's like and it's like you've watched both so say that scene where he's running around where uh the hands like chasing him and it's like he's going through the hallways knocking around the doors and everything like don't even get me started on evil dead man i'll go off on a tangent for a while (laughs) we'll we'll have to to talk after this or do another show that's just evil dead because i my friends like no i have a foam chainsaw i have like like limited edition you know the action figures i've got all the stuff in, in the other room but uh yeah I, I love that show. <laughs> See, I'm the same way. I bought all every season of the show, every season of the movies. I bought yep. like all the Funkos for everything. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> Evil yep. Dead, I guess yep. so that's in my top three for sure. <laughs> same, same. It's so very cool. in the light of speaking about characters, of course, like you've mentioned all of your characters from all of your books, but of course, like you got to have one that you probably hold to a higher regard than all the others. So out of all your characters that you've made, even if it's not necessarily the main character in your book, what is your favorite character that you've created mm, that and that really extends hard. to not even just a person character but you could even include creatures in that ooh ooh interesting oh my goodness well uh i'll 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 give i'll give winslow winslow's really at the at the top of my mind right now he's kind of an enigma you know he's a character that like it almost shouldn't work uh, in fiction, but it, but it does because of, you know, the charm that he has. It's, uh, it's, it's, he's, he's one of those characters where it's like, where it's like, if you were to list out everything this guy's done, it would, it would sound utterly unbelievable. But when you're, but when you're in it and when you're listening to him, um, and when it all comes together, it's, it's so cohesive and it just, and it feels real. I've had people ask me, I was like, is this, was this a real guy? I was like, no, <laughs> so, but that just means he wrote um, the book. Good. Like that, that's, that's, right, that's yeah. a compliment. <laughs> it is. It's a huge compliment. And, um, I've also had people, <laughs> people, cause I have a, I've got a different naming convention with my books than, 
because uh, it's Winslow Hoffner's Incredible Encounters is kind of an unusual title. And so they see that and they think it's like, oh, are you Winslow Hoffner? And, I, and I'm like, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm the name at the bottom of the book. You just got to go one <laughs> and, time uh, dressed up as a sailor and just live into it and be like, yes. I might as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have, and people have asked me, are you chicken boy? Which, uh, which I'm, I'm, I'm cool with. I'm like, yes, I'm chicken boy. But, uh, they, uh, but I had one, I had one person at my, at one of my book signings, I, they were, she were holding up the book and she, she points at, she points at this picture and she's like, that doesn't look like you. And then I, I was like, I was like, you know, (laughs) just grab their hand, slide it down. (laughs) Yeah. One, one photo lower. And then she's like, Oh, Oh, that's a nice photo. I was like, thanks. (laughs) That's my dad. um, That's my, that's my grandpa. That's my dad actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'll say uh, I'll give and then I'll give another quick uh, for the non-human character category. There is a very cool, very special character in World of the Orb named Boris, who is uh, uh, Veronica's pet. He is a what's called a mountain ronk, and he looks very much um, like a kind of if you take a yak, but it has another set of horns like coming down from the cheeks and then he has like little tusks coming down here. And, uh, and then he undergoes a very unique transformation, a uh, little ways into the book. And he's kind of, he's kind of the muscle of, of the group, but he's also, uh, this gentle giant. And he was very much inspired by my dog, Max, who was a chow chow. So my childhood dog, you know, down to the blue tongue. And so he's one of those like, um, like, uh, loyal and gentle, but fiercely protective type characters. And, um, uh, he's pretty special to me. And he's also had a, a nice, uh, heartwarming effect on lots of the readers. Lots of people have told me that's their favorite characters. He's one of mine too. That's awesome. It's one of those things too, that it's like, if you don't ask these types of things, it's almost like the, the love and intention that gets put into the characters almost gets like overlooked. Like, of course people are going to read the book. They're going to feel their emotions for the character, but you really got to like talk to the author to really get like their inspiration of like what created the character. And just off of that, it almost like humanizes the character even more and just brings them even more like into the real world of being a possible real person with a real personality. Yeah. I I mean, I sure do love talking about it. Uh, I'll talk about it all day. I had someone write me on, on Instagram, uh, who was, and this was one, this is one of my favorite, uh, reader interactions. They wrote me, and uh, wanted to know like the you know exact uh, pronunciation of all of the fantasy words of all of like the locations, and uh, she compiled this big long list. And she's like, I want to I, I want to know uh, all of these. And so and so I you know I each one of them I, I wrote out phonetically uh, for her, and um, so that's that's pretty cool. I, and I've had people people write me on uh, on Instagram mostly where they're where they're asking like. Oh, hey, you know, and they're, and they're, and they got like little, little questions. I got a bet with my friend, you know, the, uh, what, uh, what grade was, were Marvin and Andy in at the top of the book? And I was like, I was like, I was, and I said this grade. And it's like, ha, you won, you won me $5. Thank you. And stuff. And, uh, <laughs> um, I like, uh, and, and I, I, I do, I do embed a lot of, uh, a lot of unique things in there. Like the, the school that the kids go, go to in, in World of the Orb is actually named after, uh, my great grandfather's uh, surname uh, before it was changed on Ellis Island when uh, his family came over, and so the kids go to von Sconhoven High, and um, he was a historical fiction novelist, and so he was one of my greatest inspirations. When I found out that um, there was an author in my family 
uh, who, who did it. And his, his books were like required reading in colleges and stuff. And, and I was like, wow. And so I, I, I looked more into him. And uh, so I dedicated um, my, my first novel uh, to him in, in addition, in addition to all that. That's awesome. Um, it's like uh, super yeah. inspirational to just have somebody that's like to that regard in your family that's into the same field as you. Because especially when you start getting into like weird fringe stuff, like it's not very often that you actually find family members that are like, you know, especially substantial, like into the field that you're into. Like that's a, that's a really cool thing. <laughs> yeah, this is him on the wall uh, back here. Um, and so I've got th- I've got this wall of uh, of autographs that I've collected because I go to a lot of these comic cons. And so I get to meet people and I was assembling this wall. And, uh, I had, it was, it was much smaller than it is now at the time. We almost look um, like we got matching was, walls a little bit. <laughs> yeah. We kind of, we, we kind of have a similar, uh, decoration style. Uh, so, uh, respect, I recognize, <laughs> <laughs> recognize what you're doing. Um, but, uh, what's interesting about this is, um, uh, one of my, one of my extended family members found out that, you know, it, cause you know, word was getting around that I was doing these books and stuff. And, and they, they knew about, uh, uh, my grandfather and he had this whole big collection of his books and he sent them to me and they just appeared in the mail one day. And I got this big old box of my great grandfather's books. And I thought that was amazing. And I opened one up and the first one they open and to the page that I open it out tumbles this book plate that has his autograph on it. Oh, and so it says, yeah. And so it says with the compliments of the author, Larry handwritten. And I was like, and, and like I said, this is just when I was assembling my autograph wall. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, you know, this is kind of a, this is a spiritual moment here. You it's know? meant this to be, is, uh, <laughs> he, he, he wants to, he wants to be on the wall. And I had just got this photograph from my grandmother's house. So I, I put it up there. This is a picture of him signing his books. And then I, and then I tucked the signed book plate up on the on the top right there so that was a, that was a really cool that was a really cool moment yeah it's, it's super cool not a lot of people actually have that connection like i was saying so it's even better that you found an actual like written like it it just brings like a whole other connection when you have an actual thing that you know that they touched or wrote out um versus like a photocopy of it something like that it's just it it's it's just way more special. Like it's super cool. Not, not a lot of people have that. And it's just talk about a synchronicity that it just happened to fall out when you're doing this wall. And it's the only one that I'm sure that you what know that exists odds? in the family, you know? <laughs> yeah. What are the odds? You know? And I never I never got to meet him in life. So it's kind of one of those crazy things. Not to uh to tear from exactly what we we're talking about on that one, but I'm sure the uh listeners, because a lot of people obviously listen to podcasts, probably do a lot of audiobooks, and they know that your most recent book, of course, is done in audio book format. But are your any of your other books done in audiobook format? Not yet. No, this is actually my first one. And this was kind of a concept, uh proof of concept for one of my buddies who uh a friend of mine named Sam, who he runs a community school of the arts. And he wanted to get into, he, he had done all kinds of audio uh, work uh, over the years for over like 20 years. And he wanted to get into doing audiobooks for independently published authors who want to read their own book. And so it just kind of lined up where I was doing that and he heard about it and he basically gave me uh, this studio space um, just out of the goodness of his heart. And so, um, 
out of nowhere, I had access to like very high quality equipment that I could make the very best audiobook that I could have ever dreamed to have made um, with this producer who had been doing it for decades. And so it was, it was really nice. And it's one, another one of those things that just kind of lined up and felt meant to be. And, um, and he just, he just really loved the book and the characters. Um, so yeah, it was, that, that was pretty cool. And, and so I, I just jumped in there and he, you know, coached me, taught me a lot about performance, taught me some really interesting things like listeners can hear a smile, you know? And so mm-hmm. he talked about performing with your face, with your body, with your energy. And, um, and it's not so much about volume as much as it is intensity and intensity on words. And so in a very short period of time, I learned all of this invaluable stuff about performance uh, right, right at the time when uh, it came to do uh, this audiobook. So I was very, I was very blessed and fortunate to have, um, to have met him. And uh, as a thank you to him, he's, he's getting uh, the second book is going to be in part dedicated to him um, for uh, as a thank you uh, for uh, helping my books uh, enter new mediums. I was going to actually ask also what your next work that you're intending to, what you were intending to make was. And I guess you kind of answered that question all in one. Yes. So, yes. So I can, I can confirm and, and people have been asking a lot, but uh, there Winslow Hoffner is going to be a series. Uh, it's not just a one and done. It's going to be a full and rich saga. And the second one is going to come out this year and uh, it's going to expand into a cool international sort of space and there's going to be lots of uh, celtic uh myths and folklore that we get to explore in that one without of course giving too much away um would you like to drop possibly like maybe a creature that you want to include in this or like specifically or maybe even like a like a basic outline of one of the possible tales that he might tell in this next book yes uh let's see well he's got a tale uh he's got a few tales the the cover when people when people see it and I've actually posted um, this great uh, new backdrop that I had made at a local place uh, called Piedmont Press but they printed out this incredible backdrop with a cross section uh, the middle section of the of the cover illustration of the book and so you can see a few of the creatures on there and among them the centermost and most prominent is the Loch Ness monster. And so Winslow tackles the granddaddy of all cryptids, uh, the Loch Ness monster. There's a great um, image of him uh, on the little rowboat with all of this rope all tangled up in the mouth and around the neck of this great, big, uh, incredible uh, beast. And I quite like the interpretation uh, that I landed on uh, for, uh, for the Loch Ness monster. Um, Yeah. So now that you brought it up, of course, I got to ask, uh, the Loch Ness monster, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different theories based around it, but, uh, what's, what's kind of like the category I'll, I'll of course share what I, the category I kind of fall in, of course too, but, uh, like what kind of category do you fall in as far as like what the Loch Ness monster is? As far as what I, uh, fall into, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I've heard, I've heard a lot of like the, you know, megafauna level, uh, eel, uh, thing going on. And I think that's, that's a pretty good, uh, that's, that's an interesting interpretation. But, um, for, for me personally, I really like, uh, the long neck seal interpretation. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a theory put forward by Bernard Hoovelmans, um, who is of course the, the father of cryptozoology. Um, but yeah, so he, we've got the long neck seal, 
uh, interpretation. And and in Winslow, there's there's in the second book uh, especially, there's an interesting emphasis um, on aquatic mammals, and so uh, that's kind of an interesting lens that we that we get to look at. Say, as far as uh, I go on that one, um, I don't know exactly who may have stated the theory first. But I did hear it again, kind of shout out to Justin again, because he, you know, we're both friends with him. So, of course, he's going to get mentioned frequently yeah. throughout the show. Um, he did a show talking about how it's, pro- it's, there's a theory about it possibly being like a giant salamander. And uh, at least from mm-hmm. all of the clues that I've kind of put together, um, obviously nobody really knows for sure. But uh, if I had to bet on one specific possible explanation for the Loch Ness Monster, I feel like it's some type of giant salamander more than anything. I kind of that, That's kind of the category. And then the second thing that I fall into cool. is that that's it's cool uh, possibly a plesiosaur that um, kind of to expand on the theory a little bit that just kind of was in this lock at a specific time just trying to eat, but it was it's part of like the bigger ocean. Like it right. wasn't normally there and you won't find it there. It was just there at a specific time and it's gone and back into wherever it's passed away or whatever by now but as far as for me like with the salamander thing and the fact that they like sit on the bottom of the water they don't move for a long time they only pop up for food um yeah like that's kind of the category i seem to fall in like, it just yeah, makes the most they sense do breathe to me. air they do breathe air so it would make sense that they would occasionally surface and if it's this unusual thing that doesn't surface very often that would create quite a stir when it does so yeah that's a that's a really good theory I was I mean, even thinking the, the tail, tail could be the neck too. Like everybody thinks that, you know, the thing Ooh. that comes up out of the water is the head and the neck. But if it's a salamander, that could just be the tail as it's starting to dive back down. Dude, that's brilliant. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. Okay. I'll give you, I'll give you another one from Winslow too, which no, which no one knows yet, but there's this great one. Uh, like I said, uh, this kind of takes place like in the Celts in that part of the world. And we have, uh, the Morgar. Are you familiar with the Morgar? Uh, I don't think I am actually. Okay, so I, I think its name means uh, giant or sea giant or something. But there's a pretty, uh, um, if you search that up, eventually you'll come, ac- you'll come upon uh, an image that's very reminiscent of your classic uh, sea monster image, like, like Nessie, like the Nessie photo. Uh, but this one has quite a lot of humps and then this very narrow head and it comes down as this very chunky silhouette. And this is up, up in uh, near Conway, uh, Wales. Uh, this is a, or this, this one is a Cornwall. Uh, this is a Cornish, uh, monster. But anyway, so I looked at that. I was like, interesting. And there's all kinds of theories about this. Lots of your classic interpretations are, uh, just this sort of like, you know, your standard sea dragon or some type of relict, uh, prehistoric monster. But I was looking at, I was looking at how bendy it was and how, lumpy its back was and i and i was thinking to myself that looks like a like a mollusk like a like a big slug and so i was like yeah i'm gonna go with slug and so (laughs) i i I created my (laughs) i created my and that was and that was another thing i like to sort of explore different possibilities i i I hadn't done a slug yet uh for winslow so in the second winslow book we have uh, the most amazing giant slug you'll ever see <laughs> massive sea slug. And if you've seen like those, those super huge, like pitch dark shimmery, uh, heavy sea slugs, uh, those are quite, those are quite impressive, but take that and like blow it up massive, like to the size of a, of a creature. And that was an interesting challenge as an author. I was like, how do I make, how do I make a slug fearsome and, and, uh, impressive. And so, uh, I blended in qualities of, of, uh, 
of a, of of like a leech type mouth with uh with like rows and rows of lamprey lamprey like teeth and has this really bendy head that sort of like like uh like peels back open to reveal all those wreaths of teeth. And so one of my favorite illustrations in the book is Winslow facing off with the Morgar. Uh, that's going to be pretty cool. I think I'm going to put it on a bookmark also. Just uh, to throw another one at you that might be co- something cool that you could possibly dig into to use in a future book. Uh, have you ever heard of Ninjin before? Yes, Ninjin. Yes. Those are so, those, those creep me out, man. Those are weird. <laughs> <laughs> See, cause like, uh, the, for anybody that's not familiar with them, there's no like real good pictures of them. The only pictures that you really see are these like really bad cheesy pictures of these like long legged beings like walking on ice. But from all the like depictions and everything that I've dug into, they're almost like these like white lanky, like mermaid type people. Like they don't, they're not seen on land. So I don't know why all the depictions of them are done on land. Um, and they're always seen by Japanese like whaling vessels. And there's all these like weird firsthand accounts, but nobody can ever get like actual like pictures or footage of them because they're like in the water and stuff. And, uh, there's some possible like origin story to like the, I think it's uh N I N G Y O, which is basically a Japanese mermaid that they believe that if they, killed it they could take its blood and you could get like eternal life from it so it kind of goes into this whole like weird thing about like people believe the japanese government is like purposely trying to hide these things because they know what they are and they know what they could potentially be capable of and yeah just kind of a weird thing that might be you know kind of worth digging into and might be able to do something fun with it but especially considering so much of it's like up in the air like you can just kind of do what you want with it (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. I oh, I, I remember uh, when I was really young and and uh, looking up cryptid stuff. I did. I came up. I came upon those those pictures of of the ninjen, and and that just activated some type of just primal fear. Looking at those things, like the way it's like sort of hanging down. It's like um, it's kind of an un- uncanny valley situation mm-hmm. with those long, long arms and like the face like on the underside of 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 its head and uh ugh. and they i don't know they kind of have uh images of, of these things supposedly breaching and then it's like you look at it for a second it's like well that's a beluga whale but then you look at how like like weirdly articulated it is and it's like ooh, maybe it's not again unca- uncanny valley uh territory um but yeah you know int- is, talking about it out loud maybe it's some type of like weird uh manta ray because you know how um that's what there's the a lot of theories of about ray. it are is, is that so yeah because yeah. uh, like its nostrils and its mouth are sort of like positioned in such a way that it can resemble a, a humanoid kind of like uh, face or like if you're seeking the pattern of it that might be what you see um that, that's definitely almost certainly uh the inspiration for uh another uh cryptid which which does appear in winslow 2 very briefly uh that i have a lot of love for which is the um the sea bishop mm-hmm uh, have you heard of that one? Yep. Yeah. So he's he's great. He's this little this little like pope like fish man. <laughs> so he's got like it's it's got he's got this perfect. There's all these wonderful um, medieval illustrations of this guy, and so like its head is conical and it resembles you know the type of bishop hat, and then it's you know it's uh, its fins are are flowy in such a way that that just so happen to resemble like what would you call them like vestments or like uh you know the sort of flowy robes of the mm-hmm. <laughs> of that sort of um uh, uh person and and uh he was caught by i remember there was a story where he was caught by some fishermen and he was brought to 
uh, who is he brought to? Like a, a, a king, and then he like made the sign of the cross, <laughs> his little fish man, uh, before they threw him, and then they so they threw him back into the water because they're like, we can't, we can't kill him. He's Catholic, you know. <laughs> so they threw him back to the water. <laughs> and so I, I love this little guy, man. So I put him in there. And um, he even at one point he makes the sign of the cross to Winslow. <laughs> um, and it's kind of like, uh, cause this is back, this is way back when Winslow was a deckhand on, on this, um, on this cargo ship. And he ends up in a, in a really interesting uh, and really uh, intense situation where there's many, many uh, cryptids that happen to be in the same place at the same time. And, uh, and he's one of them. And he, and he's like, he's, you know, kind of going through he's the effort of freeing them and, and he comes out and he makes a sign of the cross and he, and Winslow's like, uh, thanks, you know, <laughs> and, stuff. and so, but it's symbolic. Cause this is kind of like, uh, this was, this is way back in Winslow's origin. This is kind of the beginning of how he, uh, starts his journey in, into, into the unknown. And so I kind of look at that, like his baptism, you know, of, uh, of, uh, entering the world of, of the unknown. Just kind of a funny thought on the whole doing like the cross thing too, um, you know. You find something weird and you bring it on on your on your de- on the deck of your boat. The first thing a lot of like Christian people are going to do if they see like a weird creature is they're going to do the cross. So it's like right. coming from this creature, he probably saw that as maybe like that's their version of saying hello. So he goes in front of yeah, this king yeah. and he thinks he's saying hello, but he's actually doing the cross. And ironically, it ends up being the thing that saves him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe, 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 maybe it was real. And he just had that intelligence to, you know, mimic. And, uh, but yeah, but I love that. I love that guy. And so if if any of your listeners end up looking him up and you'll see that it looks almost certainly uh, like uh, one of those, like a, a, a vertically turned uh, Ray type creature or a skate or something. Um, And there have been lots of like Fiji mermaid style taxidermies of, of, this guy that 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 kind of uses that as as the basis. Just to make another comment on the ninja thing too, um, I could definitely see the whole like manta ray thing as being like a possibility, yeah. even off the aspect of yeah, like, yeah. of course, if they're seen in the Arctic, they're going to be pretty good size because they're going to have to have some type of like blubber or some kind of like thick layer to be able to keep themselves warm in the water. So of course, if you're looking at a manta ray that's bigger than the average one, because it needs more weight and blubber to keep itself warm, like you're going to associate it with possibly being human. Like, (laughs) I think that's, I think that's a really good, I I like that. It it demystifies the ninja, which is (laughs) so, it was so spooky to me, man. Uh, Especially the, like they got the fingers like everything's like so so sort of flat and stretched out and then it has the human fingers so i really hope if it is real it's just a big old manta ray <laughs> i mean i don't know man i like to entertain the possibility of some weird shit and like I mean, it would maybe. be cool to have something explained that symbol but at the same time though it's like you still have that pull that like how cool would it be if there's just these like human-like things that live near the arctic in the water like it's probably freaky it's freaky but at the same time though it's just like you almost need like one weird thing like that to exist in the world and be recognized that it exists so that it brings more light to crypto um yeah cryptozoology as like a whole you know because it's like the closest thing that's been found to like solid like a cryptid is like you know possibly like the the black um like mountain lions but like there's like the sure. sasquatch stuff 
a lot of firsthand accounts of that, a lot of tracks, all that, but it's not like recognized by like mainstream science. And like the closest one to being recognized possibly is like the black mountain lions. But again, if you find just something that's just out there and weird, like even mainstream science will be like, maybe Sasquatch does exist. <laughs> you know? The, you, oh yeah. I mean, Sasquatch, Sasquatch is not that uh, unusual uh, compared to a lot of the other things that we have on record. You know, they just found that, wild i was talking to justin about this at the after party of uh, encounter quest but there's the really unusual i don't remember the name of it uh, justin knows it i think he's doing a, a show on it but um it has these like this like pincers this is another aquatic thing pincers fleshy head uh kind of a centipede like body although it, it swims feathers Feathers. that are white and then they're, and then they're yes and then they're tipped in gold they're they're true metallic gold this is a real creature i don't remember what it's called um but you can look it up almost reminds me of those weird uh, little like hand water dragon things that you see people post like they're they're like blue and black with like the white tips just from the depiction it almost kind of reminds me of something almost like that interesting interesting yeah i mean man the uh the implications if if a if the ninja existed um, I mean, suppose like you got, uh, you got lots of creatures that are land-based that then enter the water. Um, like, uh, you have, you know, the Cyrenians, which were, um, people, people don't know this, but like, like manatees, their closest, uh, relatives are actually, um, are actually pachyderms like, like your, uh, like your elephants. And so, and so you take that and you, and you send it to water and you see what it becomes and you see these other things that were, you know, land-based and they went to the water. Whales themselves started out as these weird rodent looking things. And, uh, and then those eventually, uh, morphed into what they are now. Turned into fucking behemoths. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And they get big, they get big. And so, I mean, suppose, suppose, uh, suppose it was some type of, if, if, I'm trying to think of what it could be like. It would have to be like like a, a descendant of the giants, you know, that that went to the water. You know, yeah. I'm trying to think of what would what would explain the hands. You know, I mean, as far as like human like uh, things go, being in the water though, just off of the mm-hmm. fact that like human like things would need to be able to like create some type of shelter, um, have some kind of like root of operation. Cause that's just how like our mentality works. Even if it's like moving along in like packs and not being like solid somewhere, like you need like that ground level in order right. to like establish yourself. So if there are weird human like things in the ocean, like maybe they're seen near the top, but I think that they would base, they would be based on at the bottom of the water. Like they wouldn't be based anywhere near the top. And they more than likely wouldn't use vision like how we do because it'd be so dark down mm. there that they would almost have like some other form of like, like, uh, like maybe like some kind of like, ult- like ultrasonic connection or like, I don't yeah. know, just they'd have something different. They wouldn't be using like eyes, like how we would be able to like feel around their landscapes to be too dark, or they'd have to have some type of like light antenna, like an angler fish or something, you know, there'd be something weird essence, to them. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah. if ninja are possibly that, the white might actually even work because maybe near the top of the water, you know, it just comes off as white. But near the bottom of the water, if these things are theoretically ex- exist, make maybe it is luminescent. You know, maybe they their light is off of themselves, and that's why their white is because maybe that it's the easiest way, f- you know, color color for them to be where they are able to like project a light to be able to visibly see. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Interesting. 
Could but, be. Um, so another weird question, just because, you know, we've already been kind of talking about like weird cryptids and things possibly existing. Um, if you had to, like, if, if somebody was like held a gun to your head and said, which, which cryptid exists, like, and you had to pick one, which cryptid do you think is the most theoretically possible that it exists, at least like in your mind? I, I would say Bigfoot. That's kind of where I'm at too, honestly. <laughs> that it, it, and aquatic it, it monsters. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of aquatic mon. I mean, I'm kind of the sea monster guy, so I mean, my head goes to lots of. I mean, the kraken. You know, I mean, we got the giant squid, like we talked about earlier. We got all kinds of stuff. They found the coelacanth, um, which everyone thought was well, everyone, not everyone. The the local tribe had a had a word for it, and they were catching them all the time and eating them. You know, uh, or the local uh, the locals of wherever they it was it was, it was in Africa, right? Anyway, but uh, it was. Uh, I, I just read about it in. Um, in, in uh, Lauren Coleman's book, what was it called? Gumbass or something? They ha- it started with a G. They had a, they had a word for it. It was it was it was that common for them to to fish and 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 sell and eat that there was a, there was a proper word for it. But um, to much of much of the world, it was you know thought extinct, and then and then they found it. And so uh, so you have the coelacanth. Uh, but yeah, no. As far as as far as what's uh, what's very possible, I would say Bigfoot. I, I've got um, I've got a I've got a signed frame of the uh, of the patty uh, footage uh, blown up uh, that they were doing on Facebook. I scooped up one of those from uh, from from Gimlin, uh, who was that's awesome. They were those. I've been trying to get one of those yeah. for a while. I wish I would have got one at a uh, CryptidCon last year. At least the the, the cast because I saw the cast there and I ended up grabbing mm-hmm. the Grace Harbor cast. But I wish I would have grabbed the uh, the Patterson Gimlin cast too. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It, oh man. Um, so, I mean, the Patterson Gimlin, uh, footage is really, really good. I look at that and, um, uh, and especially, you know, with these enhanced things and stabilized and you look at it, I see, you know, the, the hair being swiped by, by the swing of the arm. I see the, the muscles moving under it and all, all the details. And I think that's an animal. And, uh, as well as like the Paul Freeman footage, I thought, I thought was really, really good. And so, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think Bigfoot's out there. And there's uh, some type of wild man legend all over the world, you know, and it goes back goes back so many years. And so I think that that's, I think that that's one of them that's, that's definitely real, and it's just a matter of time. See, I also kind of question the fact, too, of if it's just more, a lot more simple than we think it is. Like, you put a pig out in nature, and eventually it'll, start beca- it'll become a hog. It'll start growing hair. It'll start, like, right. developing to become a hog. So it almost makes you wonder if this explanation for Sasquatch could be as simple as a couple generations of people out in the woods, and you just start developing abilities to exist better out in the woods. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or it's at least some type of, some type of humanoid. I mean, lots of the footprints have that mid-tarsal break, and that's uh, sort of a leftover quality from uh, tree climbing. And so, so I think it's I think it's at least some type of hominid that's out there. See, and I always wonder too if it's a little bit like more extended past it, where a lot of people think that it's something that's like related to humans, but maybe it's related to humans, but in a different sense. Like rather than yeah. us sharing DNA with it, like we both together share DNA with something else that's like all of us de- ex- like descended from. Cause then, I mean, even like the category of like dog men or like anything that kind of walks in like a bipedal 
position is like muscular, kind of has that build to it. It almost makes you wonder if there was like a, like a predecessor. And rather than trying to relate it to all of these things being human-like and not being able to make that connection because it's not there, you're like going like straight across the board. Like you need to go back farther. Like there's something else right. that all of them came from. <laughs> Interesting. Dog Dogman is one of those ones that blows my mind. What, what do you think about Dogman? Do you think that's flesh and blood? Do you think that's something weirder? That's uh okay. So Dogman, I recently did a three part series on the Michigan Dogman for Bizarre Encounters. Okay. So I've been like full blown into like the Dogman realm for a hot minute now, and I've come up Excellent. with three explanations of what I think they could possibly be. I think that there's one, some flesh and blood version of them that are here, and it could theoretically be like an offshoot species of like a Sasquatch because they carry a lot of like similar traits. They're just right. like a more aggressive form of it. But again, like you look at other animals in nature and they could be a fox here, a fox there, a fox there, but their temperaments are totally different and they look completely different, but they're all kind of in that same animal class. So that's my one that I could say is that they're flesh and blood and I think they could theoretically exist in nature. The second one that I go with is that you always hear like the metallic door sound before like dogman attacks and just like all this other weirdness with it. So my theory on that one is that I think that there could be like, okay, so tunnel systems, all you got to do essentially is put some doors on that and you have an underground base quick and easy. So I think that there could theoretically be doors to these things and they create these things in a lab and then they almost like test them out and see what they're capable of. And when people hear that metallic grinding door sound, it's like debris and shit getting stuck in these like doors that are opening to these tunnel systems. And when I say government created, I don't think that they're like turning soldiers into dogmen. Like we were doing cloning back in the nineties. Like I think that it could potentially be possible that they maybe have some type of technology where they can splice two different DNAs together. And I always relate it back to Jurassic Park, but any parts that don't quite fit right together, they could take other potential animal DNA and like put it together and essentially like raise these things up to be like their own species rather than like somebody getting turned into them. And then my mm. third one that I come at it with is you know, the more fun woo-woo folklore concept that, you know, they could potentially be like shapeshifters because I seem to relate everything back to like native lore. That's like kind of like my biggest fascination. And there's like the Shawnee dogmen warriors that supposedly would Ooh. like become one with the dogs. They'd like live out in nature with the dogs. And part of the ability after they became like dogmen warriors is that they could shift into dogs. So coming from like a woo-woo mm. perspective, as far as like the Americas go, I think that that's a possibility, maybe. And again, depending how woo woo you want to get, um, kind of okay. same thing could kind of go with like the European like werewolf concept. Um, right. But I feel like most of the encounters that people are experiencing are one these flesh and blood ones that do exist out in nature, and then two these government created ones because they were inspired by the ones that are out in nature, and those are the more aggressive ones that people see and you always hear like these weird stories about these things being seen near like military bases and they just seem to be like extra like slender and like built and they like know what they're doing. Like I think those are possibly the government ones. And then these like malicious ones that just like will shred people like, you know, the land between the two lakes are the uh, like ones that are here and you just infringed on their territory, just like how like a dog would act or even just any animal in nature. I mean, even like chimps, you know, like you, infringe on any animal's territory and it's going to go into attack mode. And that's kind of where it's at with it. But, <laughs> um, as far as you go, like what's kind of, what's kind of your idea or theory on dog man? Oh boy. Um, well, I was chatting with, uh, Lyle Blackburn, uh, about this, uh, ahead of, uh, Bigfoot and friends. There was a little banquet and I met him there and 
this was kind of a topic that was floating around and I was, I was very interested because, because it, it kind of, it, it confuses me because I'm like, how does this thing with a dog's head have human hands? Like the, the, the thumbs are what's really blowing me away. I'm like, how is that possible? And so the play, where I kind of land, I was like, well, certainly it's, it's like one of two things. If it, if it is exactly how people describe and it's a proper um, dog headed humanoid with, uh, you know, you know, clawed human hands. That sounds like it would have to be supernatural to me, or at least unnatural. Um, there was a, a small town monsters released their American werewolves documentary and, and hearing those people's encounters, um, and the way they were counted, you know, they very, very scary. And the one guy said it looked like Anubis. And I thought that was, that was quite scary, mm-hmm. but I came upon, uh, I came upon these reports and it's coming out of Canada, I think, and it's called, and I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but it's the, have you heard of the Gugwe? Sounds familiar. I probably have to G- see like the G- word visibly because I'm one of those yeah, people G- that it's G- like more G- often than not, you do the research and you yeah. see the word, but like when it's spoken, it, you, it like doesn't register. You have to like see right. the text, you know? Yeah. And, and so I've come upon that and, and that was an interesting thing that kind of, and just reading about that kind of, uh, kind of percolated a theory for me where half the people who see it, they say it's a Bigfoot. Half the people who see it, they say it's a dog man. And then there's a small plurality of people who say, no, what it is, is it's kind of, it's basically a Bigfoot, but it has this houndy kind of baboon like face. And I thought to myself, Oh, okay. So maybe, uh, there's at least a, a, a class of dog men where, you know, if these things are hunting at night and they has these long snouts, but it's still a primate. It just has this baboon like snout. I thought that would, that would, that would be an interesting explanation for it. So you kind of fall into the same category with me where they kind of are possibly like a sub variation of like a Sasquatch. Cause that, that's what makes yeah, the most I sense think, to me. I think that would make the most sense. If we're talking flesh and blood, I would think, uh, cause I don't, I don't know how, how dogs, how, how, how like a proper dog could develop like the hands, you know, but I could, I could totally see how a primate could develop the long snout. And so I, I think, okay, well maybe, maybe it's like this, this upright, very large, very hulking baboon like thing, um, which, you know, baboons would be quite aggressive. They got those big old canines for a reason, you know? And so, uh, so that, that's kind of, that's kind of what, what kind of captivated me or is captivating me at the moment when, uh, all this stuff was coming out and I was like, I was like, maybe, maybe it's a big old baboon. <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely see that though, especially considering that a lot of these, um, things that they relate to seem to be more of like Asian descendant. And when it comes mm. to like the, the, like ice age, for example, and like the land bridge happening, um, they say that a lot of the nat- like the natives, uh, share ancestry with like Asian people. So it would completely make sense that it wouldn't just be people that would have came over and came down into North America, like during the ice age, it would have also been creatures. And, you know, as they develop in a new environment, um, they would start taking on different abilities and start like kind of, you know, survival of the fittest kind of a concept. And then they kind of evolve and adapt into what they need to be in order to be able to survive in this environment. And that may be that they need to be a little bit bigger, um, for example, like, cause it seems like, you know, you talk to a lot of hunters and they say that as you go farther North, everything gets bigger and bigger. So if these things originally started off like North, North and the cold, cold, like they would have to be big in order to maintain their body temperatures. And like, it, it would make sense that they could have, they could adapt from that cold and then kind of just become what they are now. 
as they're starting to like progress possibly into something else because they don't need to be huge from the cold. Maybe they're starting to get smaller as each generation goes on, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, even Sasquatch, I like the way theoretically. You think, <laughs> yeah, Sasquatch too, for sure. There's so many variations of it. So I like to, uh, at least for my show, I like to just kind of expand into the weird as far as possibilities go. Like, you know, <laughs> no theory is out, out, out of the question. It's just a matter of like, you know, throw the theory and then it's yeah, out no. there and then, you know, it can either be discredited or it can be accepted. And the only way it's ever going to become something or even be acknowledged is if you got to throw the idea out, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's science. Science is asking questions. It's not, uh, science isn't like a, uh, a, a, a written and, and decided on set of rules. It's, uh, it's it's asking questions and then and then testing those questions. Yeah, I was gonna say that's the basis of science to begin with is you start with a question and that's how you build into exactly. developing a result. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But uh, before we start uh, wrapping up here, um, of course you got your new book series that you got your book series that you're working on. Uh, you said you're kind of bringing back uh, the Chicken Boy thing. Um, yeah, your second book. Uh, do you have intentions for that for the future or do you have any other work that you may be thinking about doing in the future that you'd like to throw out and kind of have the listeners, uh, you know, keep an eye out for? Uh, yeah, world of the orb will definitely also be a series. So I can say that I can say that for sure. I've gotten, I've gotten some messages asking me about that and yes, it, it will be a series. Um, I'm planning, I'm planning a five book series for both Winslow Hoffner and world of the orb. Um, but uh, my main focus at the moment is going to be Winslow Hoffner because um, the books are shorter. They're, they're quicker to write. And uh, that was something during the lockdowns. I, I went ahead and I just went full, you know, writing, writing mode in my cave. And I just I just uh, wrote I'm, I'm almost done with the third book now. And so uh, and, and I'm going to start releasing those. And so it's a it's a it's a big process, you know, putting it all together and uh, and getting the marketing ready to go. And so that people know uh, when it's out. Um, but Winslow is going to be the big uh, uh, going to be going to be the big sort of center point of, of what I'm doing right now. But Chicken Boy is also going to be um, having a, having his own Renaissance, uh, pretty soon, pretty soon next year. Uh, there's going to be the anniversary editions, like I said, because, um, it's pretty cool. Next year is, will be the 20th anniversary of when I created the character in my writing journal when I was just nine years old. So, uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. That is pretty awesome. So as far as your books go, of course, um, I know that you have a hookup with Cryptid Headquarters, and if people attend right. events and you aren't there, that they can purchase your books at uh, with Cryptid Headquarters. Um, yes. You attend events, of course. People can come up and find you. Uh, but if you're not somebody that attends events, uh, where can everybody come and find your books if they wanted to get a copy of it? Well, Cryptid Headquarters is actually a great place if you're looking at the Winslow Hoffner series specifically. Uh, they carry the first book. Um, and you can just go to their website, cryptidhq.com, and you can uh, click on the book drop down, and you can find my book there and the one with all the sea monsters. And uh, I dropped off some uh, signed book plates uh, with them. So uh, if they're in stock, you, you uh, might be able to get one that is autographed, which is especially unique for purchasing online. Uh, but otherwise, uh, you can peruse all of my books on my website, michaelthompsonbooks.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-books.com. And you can check out uh, those as, as well as the full write-ups of each of the books of the Winslow Hoffner series, World of the Orb, 
and the Chicken Boy series. So there's a little bit something for every uh, reading level and a little bit of something for everyone. And then uh, I always like to do words of wisdom uh, from the guest to the listeners. So if there is any words of wisdom you could bestow on people, be it that they're uh, you know possibly on the future writers, on uh, the cryptozoologist, anybody, uh, what would your words of wisdom be to the people? Uh, to anyone who's working on some type of long-term creative project, uh, to them I would say, uh, you know, don't stop, don't quit your daydream, as I like to say. <laughs> um, my books were all daydreams before they were uh, bound and and published. They were all doodles in the margins of my notebooks before they were uh, professional illustrations at the top of chapters. Um, and tell the type of story that you wish already existed, uh, because if if that's within you and if that's coming to you, that's a signal that it's meant to be told. And if you write what you love, there's a great chance that there are others out there who love the same thing as you. Love it, man. Some beautiful words of wisdom. And uh, for anybody that wants to come find you, they want to keep tabs on you, they uh, want to come and you know talk to you on social media, uh, where can they come and find you at? Uh, I'm on all the social media. Uh, I'm on Instagram at mthompson underscore books, uh, Facebook at Michael Thompson Books, Twitter at mthompsonbooks, and uh, everything you can find just to make it easy. Everything is on michaelthompsonbooks.com. You can find all my links there. You can find uh, the trailer for the brand new audiobook book uh, there that's available on Audible. And you can listen to a pretty great uh, little preview of it from the second chapter if you click through uh, the Audible link. And you can listen to uh, a couple minutes from the book. And that has a nice, that has a nice uh, feature of all the different voices that that you can listen to in that, in that adventure. And of course I'll uh, include all of your links down in the show description. So if anybody wants to come and check everything out, it'll be quick and easy for them. Uh, I appreciate you making the time coming on the show today, man. It's been a great conversation and I'm looking forward to next time I get to talk to you on the show or possibly bump into you at an event. Absolutely. I had a ball. Thank you for having me on. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview just as much as I did. Uh, He was definitely a great guest, awesome guy to talk to. Uh, If you guys enjoyed the show, of course, don't forget to drop that five-star rating. It's a good way to help the show grow. Uh, If you guys also enjoyed the episode, the other option you can do, of course, is share it with a friend. Uh, If you guys want to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, you guys can shoot me a message on Instagram. You guys can email me at inquiriesofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com, or you can go to the link tree, of course, and fill out this submission form. Uh, Check your spam or junk folder. Everything gets pushed that way for whatever fucking reason. So make sure my uh, reply doesn't get lost because I do respond, of course, to anybody that emails me or sends me a message. Uh, Everything that I mentioned, all available under the link tree, which is L-A-N-K-T-R period E-E slash inquiries of our reality podcast. Or if you want to make it easy on yourself, you guys can just go down to the show description, click the link and follow that to whatever you happen to be looking for. And with that, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody.
brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.